Good morning. The lesson for today is from the first book of John, verses 35 through 39. The first part is, The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. The second reading is from also the book of John first, verses 43 through 51. Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he asked of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jesus says to Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. Do you believe that you will see greater things than what the first disciples saw, what the early church saw? Do we believe Jesus when he tells us in other scripture verses that we will do and see greater things? Well, today we are continuing in our Good to Great in God's Eyes sermon series, and we are discovering or rediscovering, perhaps, that being great in the eyes of God is often counterintuitive and sometimes simply counter to many of the ways that the world would define greatness. Last week, we talked about thinking great thoughts And we learned from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi why it was important to set our minds on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and commendable and excellent. Paul reminded the church and reminds us that what we set our minds to has implications on other areas of our life. Today we're going to be talking about following great leaders and dreaming great dreams. We're going to talk about choosing godly mentors in our life or allowing ourselves to be chosen by mentors. Mentors who seek um, to build up and to empower us in those God-given dreams and passions that God has placed in our heart. Now, the passage that you just heard read from John chapter 1 recounts the story of Jesus selecting 
and Jesus's first followers following Jesus selecting disciples and how they decided to follow. And I believe this passage gives us a lot of clarity in terms of how Jesus did this leadership thing and how those first followers followed. What did he say? What enticed them? How did this all play out? Whenever any of us get stuck in our theological thinking, whenever we start to wonder, you know, how do we discern which way to go, who to follow, how do we to follow, how do we discern if we're supposed to be leading someone? I think that we can all always go back to Jesus, to Jesus's teachings, to his life, his example, his witness, to what Jesus has called us to. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is God. Not Jesus was God, but Jesus is God. And therefore, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a greater person to have walked this earth than Jesus the Christ, our Lord, the God-man. Now, we're going to unpack the significance of the leadership and the followership that we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in just one minute. But when I was thinking this week about leaders in my own life, those who have um, made a difference, godly leaders who have impacted and shaped my life, uh, my thoughts immediately went to my fourth grade teacher. Now, fourth grade contains some of... How many of you remember fourth grade? Anyone? Okay, yeah. Fourth grade contains some of my earliest memories of social interactions and social awkwardness. It became, fourth grade is when I first remember um, people grouping off into different social categories. And fourth grade also contains the first memories I have of how judgmental human beings can be towards one another. Fourth grade or in and around that time is also when we begin as human beings to become self-differentiated in our thinking. Meaning it's when we start to realize that we are separate and unique individuals connected to our families, but also apart from them, God has made us as individuals. And so we begin to explore what that means and, and how that needs to play out. Now, for me, I was always an athletic and a sporty person. I was what you would call as tomboyish um, as a child. And, um, and, and in the fourth grade, I remember that I decided to push the envelope a little bit with that with my parents. And so I went to my mom. And at the time, I had a very st- stereotypical little girl, like bouncy ponytail And I went to my mom and I said, I am going to cut all of my hair off and I'm going to make it this like, I like shave it, like shave the back and I'm going to make it spiky and it's going to look like this in this picture. And my mom, bless her heart, didn't push back. And she said, "Um, okay, I think you're going to regret that, um, but it's just hair. And so she let me cut all of my hair off and, um, and, and my gosh, if I, my dad still haunts me with these pictures, I'm like, what were you thinking? Why did you let me do this? He's like, you know, but it was like overly gelled. It was awful. Um, but my mom let me kind of just figure that out. Now into this awkward environment full of other awkward fourth graders stepped a new teacher into our school, Mrs. Leva. Now, Mrs. Leva was full of energy, she was fun, and she just had this instinctive ability to connect with students. 
to just connect with them right where they were and to bring out the best in them. Um, Mrs. Levitt was also the coach of many of the sports teams that I played on that year. And what I remember most about her was that she was a constant and steady presence, not only in my life, but in the life of all of the other students and all of the other athletes that she coached. Now, we were a bunch of scrappy kids from a scrappy neighborhood in Philadelphia. And every single summer, we would play in these summer basketball leagues at different playgrounds. And I know what you're thinking. Of course you played basketball. You have the height to be an excellent basketball player. Uh, but, but we played in these leagues. And what I remember most is that Mrs. Leva would often drive our entire team in her sedan. Um, and, and this wasn't just any old sedan. This sedan was actually had a big hole in the floor of the back seat, like a floor, like a hole on the floor of the car where we could see the road passing by underneath us. Uh, I don't know how the hole got there. I don't know why we were in this car, but we were definitely not in seatbelts. Someone was most definitely in the trunk and our entire team was like piled into this car. And it was just such a fun experience. And thank God, you know, no one was hurt because there was a hole in the car. Um, there was another incident unrelated to the hole where I guess Mrs. Leva thought we were all in the car, uh, but Jenny Doyle wasn't quite in the car yet, and so Miss Leva drove off and um, wound up uh, driving over her foot and, and breaking her foot. Yeah, um, it was unfortunate. And so, <laughs> but you know what I don't remember? I don't remember anyone being overly angry. There were no complaints filed. Mrs. Leva didn't lose her job. You know, we took Ginny to the hospital. Ginny got a cast and she was back in this crazy car with us, you know, the very next week, you know, cheering on the team. Now, Mrs. Leva wasn't just, she wasn't just a teacher. She wasn't even just a coach. She would spend her nights then uh, volunteering at, at a few elder care facilities. She had this energy that was stemming from some divine source. And she would just pour out and, and pour in to, to all of those who she encountered. And so this relationship that began with a fourth grade teacher and some sassy, awkward fourth grade students has for me grown in to a lifelong mentorship and friendship. Mrs. Leva was the one who helped me write my college essays in high school when, when God was calling um, me to take that next step. She was there at our wedding, reading scripture, being an active part um, of the service. And I don't know when I, I found this out, but I definitely didn't know this as a child but our families became friends over the years. She became friends with my mom and we began spending time together. And one time when we were at her house, I remember going through pictures and I found a picture of her like in a habit, like a nun's habit. And I'm like, I didn't know you were a nun. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, that was before, you know, and then I wanted to like have my own family. And so I left. I'm like, wait, that's a story. I want to, I want to know more about that. Like, what was that like? But she never made a big deal about it. I don't even know the whole story. I just know it's something she did because it really didn't matter. Convent or, or no convent, habit or no habit. God was leading her to lead others. And God's spirit was present. And her servant spirit was present in the way that she taught and coached and empowered and equipped and built up everyone whom she encountered. So I wonder, aside from your parents or your guardians, who were the Mrs. Levis in your own life? 
Who comes to mind when you think about people who either set you on a course or changed the course that you were on, that inspired you, that were able to lay down the law when that was needed, but could also connect with you relationally and helped you to believe that you could really be that person that God was calling you to be? How are we able to discern great leaders in God's eyes? How do we know we are following great leaders? Well, that takes us back to our scripture passage for today. So I invite you, if you don't have your Bible open already, to open to page 862 in your pew Bibles. Now, this passage, like I said, talks about the very first disciples of Jesus. So we can learn from this passage who they were. How did Jesus pick them? How did they decide to follow Christ? And one of the very first things we learn from John chapter 1, and this happens before the passage that we heard read today, but we learn in John 1 that the very first disciples of Jesus became disciples of Jesus because they were followers of another great leader, the leader who prepared the way for Jesus. Does anyone know who that was? John the Baptist. Do you often think about John the Baptist having disciples? He did. He did. And in that passage in John 1, we see John the Baptist acknowledging his calling. This is what my job was. And also acknowledging the extent of his ministry. Hey, this is where I leave off and where Jesus' ministry begins. John the Baptist had an amazing self-awareness. He was not trying to be Jesus. He wasn't trying to have a calling that wasn't his to have. He knew what his calling was in pointing people to Jesus and leading him there. And then John the Baptist slowly fades from the scene. The last we hear of John the Baptist in John's Gospel comes in chapter 3. And we hear John the Baptist saying, God must increase and I must decrease. These are signs of a great leader. He knew his calling. He knew his limits. He knew that he needed to decrease so that God could increase. And he knew when it was time for him to fade from the scene. Can you imagine if worldly leaders knew when it was time to just fade from the scene, right? Like, thank you. You fulfilled your purpose. You were an amazing pass the baton already. Go silently into the night. That's not exactly how this often plays out, right? Self-awareness. John the Baptist knew what he was called to and he knew when it was time to point towards Jesus and exit the stage. So we know that the first disciples of Jesus were actually disciples of John the Baptist first. What else can we discern about how these ordinary, everyday people became followers of our Lord and Savior? Well, we see in verse 36 there in um, John chapter 1 that typical of, typical of Jesus, he doesn't come up and start demanding and commanding his would-be followers. We see that he starts out with a simple question, very typical of Jesus to ask questions. Jesus notices that there are two people following him. And so he turns and he says, what are you looking for? And they look and they say, hey, rabbi, they call him rabbi, they call him teacher. They say, we want to know where you stay. 
Now, this could imply a geography, like where are you physically staying? But it also likely has a relational um, component to it, too. Who do you stay with? Who are your people? We want to know where you stay. And then we see in verse 39 that Jesus simply responds when they want to know where he stays with, come and see. He invites them along on the journey. Notice how Jesus doesn't take the opportunity to deliver a sermon. Notice that he doesn't go into a lecture. He doesn't start to go into an apologetic argument trying to explain and defend who he is as the Son of Man and why they should follow him. He simply invites them. Come and see. Have you ever received an invitation from God that felt like this? Come and see. I want to show you something. If we continue down to verse 43, we see that the very next day that Jesus went to Galilee and he found Philip. And again, we don't see any recorded extended introductions. There was no red carpet affair. Jesus doesn't go in to a long reasoning about why he's there. What does he say to Philip? Follow me. Jesus, our our Lord, a leader worth following, invites would-be disciples by simply saying, come and see. Follow me. That's how the disciples were chosen. They decided to actually take him up on this offer. We don't know how many people he asked that just decided that they weren't They weren't going to come, that they were just going to stay where they're at. We don't know these things. But we do know that there was probably some sort of revelation that allowed Philip, that allowed Peter, that allowed Andrew to know, at least feel or believe that this was possibly the Messiah. We know that there was some sort of revelation. We know that there was mystery and that there was risk involved. Come and see. Follow me. Where are we going? Do we have time to stop for lunch? When will we be back? Should I tell my family that we're going to be late for dinner? We don't know. And Jesus isn't interested in answering those questions. We see also in this passage that there is a jarring and a decentering that occurs. When, G- when Philip tries to introduce Jesus to Nathaniel... Nathaniel is verbally confused. He verbally processes his confusion about this person that he sees in front of him. Jesus, the Christ. So Nathaniel says, does anyone know what Nathaniel says in this passage? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything good? We see that his notion of worldly leaders, of what great leaders, leaders worth following, his notion of that has been decentered. Jesus has no political, economic, military clout. He has no position in the world. And so Nathaniel is trying to bounce this invitation to meet Jesus off of what he believes a leader worth following should look like. What kind of family should they come from? What kind of rank should they hold in society? But that's not what he sees. And now we see now Philip echoing what Jesus said earlier to the first two disciples. Well, come and see. Can anything could come from Nazareth? Come 
and see. And I believe that God still invites us along these same parameters here. I believe that God often shows up in our lives in ways that decenter our notion of what great leaders look like. And we have to do this mental jarring. Can anything good really come from A, B, or C? And Jesus then says to us, come and see. Follow me. Now, if you don't know Christ, then my hope and my prayer today is that you are open and willing to the invitation that Christ offers every single one of us to come and see. If you're doubtful, if you believe that maybe Jesus was a good person or a good teacher, but maybe not God, maybe not our Lord, then my hope and my prayer is that you are open to the invitation that he offers us to come and see that he really is who he says he is. And if you do know Christ, my hope and my prayer is that you remain open every single day that you have breath in your lungs to the invitation that Jesus gives us to follow him. It's a lifelong journey in big decisions, in small decisions, in decisions where the world is watching and in decisions in where no one is watching at all. My hope and my prayer is that you're open to the invitation to follow Christ throughout your life. Now, based on the example that we have been given in John 1 about leadership, about followership, about how Jesus chose and disciples decided to follow, what can we learn about those leaders around us? How do we know that we're following great leaders? How do we, how do we pick out who to follow? Um, or, you know, how, how do we decide maybe, maybe, maybe we're the leader in that case? What does a good leader look like, um, according to God in God's eyes? Well, the first thing that I think we can learn from this passage is, is that we should be willing to follow leaders or be leaders who inspire you to live your God-given purpose. Follow leaders who inspire you to live that passion, that purpose that God has placed in your heart. That's different than, um, it's different than a self-serving purpose. Uh, our God-given purpose is that place, that sweet spot that intersects with the gifts and the talents that God has given to us, where that intersects with the kingdom of God entering this world. Where is God's kingdom being manifested and built up? And what gifts has God given us? Our God-given purpose often intersects in that area. So we should inspire leaders who, who call us toward that purpose. There are plenty of leaders that are going to be willing to use your gifts and your time and your energy and all that you have to fulfill their self-fulfilling purposes. The question we need to ask is, what is God's purpose? And how do we use what we've been given to lead into that? Now, I am not saying that you should quit your job. And I say that because I preached a sermon on discerning our, uh, our God-given purpose a few years ago, and someone from the church came up to me and they said, your sermon inspired me to quit my job. And I said, ah, um, <laughs> maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Um, maybe God is calling you into a different career or a different job or a different path. But you know that that's something that you kind of can work out with God and your family and those close to you. Um, but um, 
That, that's not exactly what I'm saying, but though it could be. Uh, so our God-given purpose, follow leaders that point us in that direction. Two, follow leaders who exemplify servant leadership. And one caveat for us is as Christ modeled. This is a community that's full of servant leaders um, in various ways, shapes, or forms. But we want to look for leaders to exemplify servant leadership as Christ has modeled. That means that we're looking for leaders who know that to lead means to serve sacrificially and selflessly as we seek to follow God's will over our own will. Servant leaders who lead in ways that put God's will ahead of our own self-serving will. Third, we want to follow leaders who take risks for Christ. Like Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel in, in our passage today who didn't exactly know where they were going or where God was calling them, but they knew that they wanted to be part of the mission that God had invited them on and they were willing to just go all in and to follow and to see where God was leading. So we want to follow leaders who are willing to take these risks even when it's unpopular, especially when it's unpopular, um, when they're willing to put their life into action. And we can often learn great things from leaders who are living the life that Christ calls us to. So follow leaders who take risks for Christ. Pastor Rob often says that that God calls us out of our comfort zones. And and that's true. And so we need to be willing to take those risks. Fourth, follow leaders who build you up and empower you for your God-given purpose. Who are those leaders that empower you, that are, that are building you up, that are telling you who they, who they see you to be in God's eyes? What are the gifts that God has given you? Um, how might the world need those gifts? Leaders that equip you, empower you, and release you um, to be the best version of yourself that, that Christ needs you to be. This is an important one. Uh, we often give negative voices and negative people a whole lot of power over us. Um, and, and so um, we don't want to be letting people into our living rooms and in our minds and in our hearts that are only seeking to dismantle and destroy and to tear down all of the time. I mean, good leaders will challenge us, will call out our weaknesses, will tell us where maybe we're not seeing things um, exactly the way that God wants us to see them. But if there's someone in your circle that's just constantly tearing down and tearing apart what you believe God is trying to build up, you are free to unfollow people, to not let them in to your spaces. That's okay. That's smart sometimes. So we want to follow leaders who empower us, who equip us, who build us up to live into our God-designed purposes. We want to follow leaders who believe God can and will do great things. There are plenty of people that are going to be more than happy with mediocrity because that keeps us all comfortable. It's a known quantity. It doesn't stretch us beyond what we're comfortable with. And also, because human beings as a whole lot tend to be very insecure. So if you come onto the scene with God has given me this dream, that is going to be threatening to some people. So you want to find leaders who take that big God-sized dream that God has given you and that they help you to believe that God can and will do great things with it. We're told in the Gospel of John 14, 12, 
that the one who believes in Jesus will also do the works that he does and will do greater works than these. Do you believe that God has called you to greater works? Do you believe that the Bible is true when it says that we will do greater things? So we want to surround ourselves with leaders who believe God can and will do these great things. And finally, we want to surround ourselves with leaders who encourage you to dream that big dream for God. Like I just said, you know, big dreams are scary for ourselves and often for those around us. They threaten our comfort. They threaten status quo. They disrupt norms. But God has called us to pursue the dreams that God places in our heart. These dreams have got purposes for God's kingdom. So I'd like to invite our worship um, team to come up at this time. Now, I don't know if God has given you a great dream, or maybe someone in your circle, your family, your children, your neighbors, have brought you a dream that God has placed on their heart. But I'd like to end out in worship this morning by just taking a few moments, allowing you to write down that dream that God has placed on your heart. You can do this in your sermon notes. You can also take out your phone and use your notes app there. If you use your phone, I invite you um, to screenshot it and keep it as your wallpaper so that you're able to look over this dream. If you write it on paper, take it home, hang it somewhere where you'll be able to look at it. But what is that dream that God has placed on your heart? What kind of team would you need to make this happen? Or if it's someone else's dream, what kind of support would they need to be able to live into the dream God is calling them to? What kind of risks are entailed here? How do you know it's God that's calling? And what is holding you back from taking that very first step? So let us just take the next minute or so to take some time to write that down.